Bill, thank you. I, I almost wore my 49er sweatshirt. And uh, next week, not knowing that the 49ers were going to get into the Super Bowl, I committed to speak next week in the afternoon at 3.30. Dan said he would send me updates on the game. It may affect my preaching. So, you know, today we're going to continue uh, on a series on Built on a Rock. The first time I saw that, I thought we were talking about a Bob Seger song. Remember that, you know, Like a Rock? But the interesting thing about that song is near the end, he's going back and lamenting in that song. And uh, we've already had two in this series, the body of Christ and the people of God. Today, we're going to explore the temple of God where God's spirit dwells. Anybody here got a bucket list? I've got one. And uh, part of that bucket list is to go and do a tour called the Following the Footsteps of Paul. And uh, it goes to Greece and it goes to Turkey and everything. And one of the places I wanted to, to visit is, I want to visit and is the Isle of Patmos. And the other one is the city of Ephesus, which is today in Turkey, modern day Turkey. And I, and I want to visit the place where uh, the temple to Artemis is. Because uh, it was, um, hey, there it is. It was a good snapshot. And um, it, apparently it was enormous. It was beautiful. And some people even say it was mesmerizing. But it was destroyed in 401 A.D. And it, today it's in ruins. I want to talk about today another temple. One that the Lord has built and continues to build with a firm foundation that can't be destroyed. And every one who trusts in Christ is part of that temple. It's the temple of God where the Spirit himself dwells. Now, we're going to look at two passages of Scripture today. So, if you have your Bibles, or you're my wife, you have your device, turn to 1 Corinthians 3 where we'll see the first characteristics of the temple. Now, so let's take a look at the characteristics of the temple that God makes. The first is is that the temple is composed of people. Now, it's true that you and I are individually are a temple of God also. That's in 1 Corinthians 6. But we're in 1 Corinthians 6 today, which says, you know, my notes say 1 Corinthians 6. I'm wrong. It's 1 Corinthians 3. Yeah. Um, it says, do you not know that you... Now, in Greek, that word is plural. And that's why the NLT, if you read the NLT, says, do you not know that you all together are? Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Simply put, we are the temple of God. 
which means that we all, Christians, all believers in Christ Jesus, are joined together in one family and called the church. And we are a holy dwelling place for God's presence. And you and I are part of that. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was a beautiful, sacred building dedicated to worship of God, where God's presence rested. According to Paul, the church is equivalent to that temple. God's presence resides in the church. So that's number one. It's made up of people. Number two, characteristics of the temple of God. God's temple, it says, is to be holy. Paul says in our passage, God's, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Peter says in First Peter 1.16, you must be holy because I am holy. And it's repeated in Leviticus uh, a couple of times. But what does it mean that God is holy? Because if we can figure out how God is holy, maybe we can figure out how we're supposed to be holy. Passages like 1 Samuel 2.2, but especially Isaiah 6.3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of, of heaven's armies. And these are just two examples of, of God's holiness. You know, another way to say it is absolute perfection. Yikes. Should I also be perfect? Matthew 5.48 You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that possible? I mean, let's, let's consider the overall context of being perfect. Now, Jesus begins his sermon in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, by pronouncing blessings. You know, Beatitudes, blessings. Blessings. When we did our... our um, Translation into Spanish there, I, we actually use the word uh, blessing rather than beatitude. Bienaventuradas, but it was blessings. He then declares that his followers are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And next he turns attention to the law, making it clear that his standard surpasses the mere observance of the law. And then he explains that our very thoughts and motives are also important. So this is why Jesus equates lust with adultery, hatred with murder. He also emphasizes love for enemies, the permanence of marriage, and avoidance of oath-taking. These things have to do with thoughts and motives. So in Matthew 5.48, you know, be perfect. He's setting a higher standard than we're used to setting. So we're called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. No small task. Now, what it means is every aspect of our being should be aligned with God's ways, including our deepest thoughts. You know, the Greek word here, teleos, conveys an idea of maturity, of completeness, of attaining a goal. In this context, the goal is to meet God's standard, not settle for a human standard. A follower of Christ cannot have the attitude that says, well, you know, Compared to everybody else, I'm not too bad. The goal is to be perfect, you know, and that actually should frustrate us. Because who hasn't experienced coveting or lust or hatred? You know, it seems like a hyperbole. You know what a hyperbole is? It's an exaggerated statement or a claim not meant to be taken literally. It looks like a hyperbole. 
And, and there are some hyperboles in the Bible. And, and all, you know, the Bible says that we're not perfect. Every one of us is a sinner, as, as Larry was point, pointing out today, who's fallen short of God's standard. How can we reconcile these two things? I think the answer lies in the gospel. Like a lot of things, the answer lies in the gospel. Jesus is the only one who has lived a perfect life. And it's through him that we can meet God's standard. Rather than by earning righteousness, we are declared righteous. And because of what Jesus did. Now, sometime, I'd like to spend a whole morning talking about the difference between justification and sanctification. It came to me one time when I was in southern Brazil, and I wrote it all down, and one of these days I'm going to preach it. But it's sitting there. But see, the difference between justification and sanctification is so important. And what happens when someone depends more on one than the other rather than keeping him in a godly balance? Let's go to Romans 3, 22 to 24 in the New Living Translation. We have been made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet, God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty from our sins. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians 5.21. God, for God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Now since we are made perfect through Christ, justification... We should live accordingly, sanctification. Our lives should now exhibit God's righteousness and holiness. Christ's standard becomes a way of life as we obey his teachings. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we, we find the strength to love our enemies, to uphold our relationships, mm, overcome lust, mm, hatred, anger, and follow the other commands in scriptures. In obeying the command to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, we dare not lean on our own righteousness, which will always fall short. We must rely on Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit within us. Zechariah, we just finished reading Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but my, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. But I want to go a little further and talk about another aspect of being holy. When it says you must be holy as God is holy. And the temple of God is holy. When God told Israel to be holy in Leviticus 11 and Leviticus C was 19. He was instructing them to be distinct from the other nations by giving them specific regulations to govern their lives that the world would know that they belong to him. Now, Peter repeats his words in 1 Peter 1.16. You must be holy, for I am holy. He is saying, as believers, we need to be holy. In other words, set apart from the world unto the Lord. We need to be living by God's standards, not the world's standards. 1 Peter 2.9 describes us as a holy nation. We are separated from the world. We need to live out that reality in our daily day lives. 
Now, there was one other thing I want to want to say here. Many years ago, I found a, a use of the Greek word here for holy in classic secular Greek. And it means, it goes one step further, it means set apart, yes, but to be put to the proper use. God's temple, that's us, is holy. To be set apart, to put to use in God's kingdom. Now I have, in my house, an espresso maker, which is called a Greca. Now, my wife shines that thing every night. I mean, it is a work of art. But you know what I do every morning? I put Cuban espresso coffee in it. I put it on, 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 on the burner and I make coffee with it. I put it to its proper use. And that's sort of the idea here. We are, when we become Christians and we are holy, we are set apart to be used by God the way God wants to use us. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the testing you may be discerned what is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, characteristic of the temple of God, number three, informing his temple, God had to come, overcome, and he still does, cultural difficulties. Now, I want to go back to Dan's sermon last week a little bit and read Ephesians 2, 11 and 13 from the New Living Translation. He says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. That's the situation God faced. Outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision. Now, proudness always leads to putting others down. It always will. Let's never forget what Proverbs 16, 18 says. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So, yeah, they were proud of their circumcision. And then, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Now, summary. Being Gentiles, they were despised. Far from Christ. They didn't have the passport to heaven. They were not part of God's temple, ignorant of God's promises, and without hope. Something had to be done. I got an idea. Let's bring in a list of human rules. No, wait a second. I think we already have one of those. Here's what Christ did. Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. For he himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall, all walls. He broke down the wall of hostility and separated us 
That separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people. Now, the ESV says one new man. But as Dan explained last week, it, it's, it's, it's more than, it's mankind. It's, so that's why the NLT here says one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away and peace to the Jews who were near. And now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Now, verses 19 to 22, which is actually the, our passage for today in Ephesians chapter 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place by, but for God by the Spirit. Now, Ephesians is broken into two parts. Uh, the first three chapters deal with the p- position of the, of the believer, who we are. And they don't really tell us to do anything. Uh, they just state what is true about us and who we are because of Jesus Christ. Then we get to chapters 4 to 6, and this is how we ought to act because of who we are. And that's why 4.1 begins with the word, therefore. Now, practically speaking, let's face it, we don't always act like who we are. We don't always live it. And, and we look around the world and the church is fragmented and fractured and split. But that's not an out, outworking of who we are. That's a corruption of who we are. The temple of God means we're one. Paul particularly focused on the concept of the Jew and Gentile. Why? Because that was the most divisive point in, uh, point in the world at that time. And he's saying that Jew and Gentile had become one new Man, it could have been other divisive points depending on the time in history or the part of the world you might be in. There was a time in the history of this country that the most divisive points was slavery. Today, it could be Republicans and Democrats, one new man in Christ. It could be giants and Dodgers, one new man in Christ. An angel who is translating today is Argentine. And for him, I say it could be River y Boca, the two in Buenos Aires, two of the soccer teams, and people are fanatic about that down there. One new man in Christ. It could be vaccinated or don't get vaccinated. One new man in Christ. Could be race. He made one new man in Christ. I had a chance to visit Belfast. In Northern Ireland, and during during the worst days of the uprisings, and there was the infamous Mays Prison there, and the Mays Prison held both Catholic Irish nationals 
and Ulster Protestant loyalists, they hated each other with a hatred none of us, I think, will ever understand. And many of them, because of murders and other things, were in the maze, the infamous maze prison, and they had to be kept separate, completely separate. They couldn't be together at any time. But some on both sides came to know Jesus. And while I was there, they were meeting together in the prison for Bible study. God made one new man in Christ. Jesus overcomes and overcame the deepest divisions among people and makes one new people that love each other. That's the temple of God. Ephesians 3.14 Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds all together in perfect harmony. Only Jesus could do that. We are the temple where the Spirit of God dwells. Ephesians 2.16 says that we've been reconciled into one body. We're all one in Him. And in order for us to live as one, to act as one, and in humility look upon the interests of others more than our own, in order to serve each other and love each other, we've got to understand who we are in Christ. You know, last week... You know, we, we have our Spanish church at 3 in the afternoon. So I got home. It was halftime. So I turned on the TV to see how the 49ers were doing. And I turned it off. I turned it off. I'm not going to watch this. It's a massacre. About 45 minutes later, I snuck a look at my phone. I'm turning it back on, Gail. I don't know what went on in the locker room at halftime between the 49ers and the Lions. But I can imagine it might have gone something like this. Remember who we are. How we got here. We're one team. We wear the same uniform. We have the same coach. We're trying to win the same game. We're trying to do it together. And we are, and, and we are one, and we must play as one. We've got to function as one while we're playing different positions. Now, I don't know if Shanahan said that, but I can imagine that he said something like that. Probably more salty, though. We all know that unity in the world is a very serious problem. You know, the world is filled with conflicts. You know, the war in Ukraine. What's going on in Israel, the bombing in Iran, unrest in the cities, mass shootings in the United States and Mexico. There's little unity and no peace. And we know that divorce is escalating as people find it more and more difficult to commit themselves to any lasting and meaningful relationships. All this stems from one basic problem that that. Jeremiah knew about a long time ago, Jeremiah 17:9, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. And the only place where self really dies is at the cross of Christ. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, 
but Christ who lives in me. And when self dies, selfishness dies, and peace and unity become a possibility. Now, I think in all of this, Paul's message here is he's given a basic definition of the church, of who we are. When he was crucified, he removed the barriers. Verse 14 says he took down the middle wall. He removed the things that separated us. He made us into one new person out of two groups. I don't know if you, uh, uh, is Ken still here? If, if you saw the movie, uh, Remember the Titans. And it, it, to me, I could watch that movie over and over. In 1971, high school football was everything to the people in Alexandria, Virginia. But when the local school board was forced to integrate an all-black school with an all-white school, talk about the division they had to overcome. You know, and I lived this. I, I was brought up in an area that was, uh, we don't use this word anymore. But in those days, we used to use the word ghetto. And I grew up there. And then, I mean, we, we, we grew up all together. There, there, were, there were Hispanics, there was white, there was black, there was Japanese and Chinese. And then the riots in Watts. Most of you are not old enough to remember those in Watts, in Los Angeles, came in 1965. And one of my black friends came to me and said, we can no longer be friends. Just like that. We can no longer be friends. You know, Jesus' death brought down those barriers. And we humans have always had classes and categories we fit people into. Many years ago, it was temperaments. Remember those? Hmm. Sanguine, melancholic, sanguine, melancholic, caloric, and what was the fourth one? Phlegmatic. That was it. And then now it's personality types. Realistic, investigative, artistic, social, enterprising, and conventional. We've we've always had this separation problem. And, And strife and conflicts... But in Christ, all comes together in wonderful unity. And it's illustrated here between the Jew and the Gentile. And if God can do that to the Jew and the Gentile and the Greek and the barbarian and the bond and the free and the male and the female, he can do it with us. He does it in Christ. He makes this one. Characteristics of the temple of God. Number four. Punishment. For damaging God's temple is severe. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 3. In fact, Ken read read this this morning. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. When I was preparing this, I said to, to Gail, my wife, I said, What destroys God's temple? She says, Gossip! I'm going to stay away from that one. But... I thought, you know, maybe Paul was thinking about the things that were going on in the Corinthian church, because this was written to the Corinthians. So let's take a quick look at some of the things that were going on. Some Corinthian Christians were divided over church teachers. I'm a follower of Paul. No, not me. Apollos. Uh, me? It's Peter. Ah, I only follow Christ. The cross overcomes this. Factions damage the temple of God. 
Some Corinthians, Corinthians Christians were bringing lawsuits against each other. And uh, that was another cause of division. Some Corinthian Christians were excusing sexual immorality. We find that in verses chapters 5 and 6. Some Corinthian Christians were abusing the Lord's Supper by marginalizing poor Christians. You know, I've said this before. I'll probably say it again. But the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Some Corinthians... Christians were looking down on what they considered the less valuable spiritual gifts and yet failing to use their own gifts to edify the body. Some Corinthian Christians were denying that God will bodily resurrect believers. Wrong doctrine, as Dan said last week, harms the temple of God. The last one, characteristics in the temple of God. As members of God's family, we are fellow citizens and a holy temple. Let's read Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, and then go into the second part. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. We are, first of all, fellow citizens. Now, therefore, because we've been made one in Christ, we all have access and peace with God we are no longer strangers. That word there, strangers, in, in, um, in Greek is xenos. Have you ever heard of xenophobia? Xenos, strangers. It means someone who's an outcast or someone you want to keep at arm's length. That's no longer true. We're now fellow citizens with all the saints. There are no xenos in the family of God. It's our citizenship. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, we're citizens of the same kingdom in heaven. Secondly, he goes on to say that citizens also with God's holy people are members of God's family. We're not only fellow citizens, we are family. We're not just strangers or naturalized or allowed to be in the kingdom. We are family. Hebrews 3.6 But Christ as the Son is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house. We are family. Hebrews 2.11. This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. You know, it's interesting. I was listening to an uh, interview with one of the Oklahoma, Oklahoma City Thunder basketball team, NBA. And it, it was one of their stars, and I can't remember which one it was. But uh, he said in the interview, Oh, the locker room is great. We're a family. Now... I'd like to hear that same guy interviewed if they were 15 wins and 34 losses instead of 34 wins and 15 losses and leading their division. But you know, in the household of God, we are a family no matter what the circumstances. Thirdly, he says we're built into a holy temple and that holy temple has a chief cornerstone. And the cornerstone is the major stone that is set down. It it has to be large to support the superstructure. It had to be accurate 
because the walls were all conformed to the angle of that stone. And every other block in the entire building fit into that stone. So the cornerstone was the thing to which everything was adapted. The cornerstone was to support. It was the unifier. It was the connector. It was the strength giver. And the cornerstone of the temple of God is Jesus. And then notice, it says that the foundation is built on the apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets laid the foundation of doctrine and connected it to the cornerstone, Jesus. Remember, 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul said, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles with their doctrine and their foundation. And there the building goes up. Verse 21, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. When God builds his church, it it fits, it's solid, it's cohesive, it's snug, it's firm. Every stone fitted perfectly into its place without defect. The church, positionally, Before God is perfect. If God is going to build a temple in which he's going to dwell by his spirit, it's going to be that perfect temple. Our position in Jesus Christ is that we are fellow citizens of his kingdom. Fellow members of his family and living stones. Peter says in 1 Timothy 2.5, You yourselves are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the temple is growing. New stones are being added all the time. And one of these days, it's going to be done. And that's when Jesus is going to come back. What a fellowship we have. What beautiful unity is ours. Let's do all we can to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's live it. I think Paul gives us a perfect summary. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do a Dan Hickman here. I'm going to read Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan in which he carried out through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our challenge is to go out and live like who we are. Lord, thank you for these time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these two passages. Thank you that we are part of your temple and your temple is holy. Now, Lord, each one of us, as we go our way, help us to live out and be good members of the kingdom of God in our homes, to our neighbors, in our work, and in school. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.